Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. I know you just sat down, but let's go ahead and do some calisthenics and stand back up for the reading of God's word. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. You got a long one. It says this. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look into it. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even look in it. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, God, for your word, and we pray as we dig into uh, this passage for the next few moments that you would just speak to us. Whatever you're trying to communicate in this passage, I pray, Lord, that we would uh, be able to, to pull that out of the scripture so that we might better know who you are, what you've done for us, and why we gather together. I pray that we would be humbled by what we read today, knowing that you are an amazing, all-powerful, all-knowing being who not only created us, but saved us. And that you were deserving of all worship because of that. Lord, it's in your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, y'all can have a seat. Well, about 10 years ago, in uh, 2013, there were two comedians in London on their way to a comedy show, and they had their th this thought in their mind. They thought to themselves, what if we had church without God? Interesting thought. They grew up uh, in a Christian world. Uh, I'm not positive off the top of my head if they grew up in, a, in church and as Christians. But they, they looked out at this landscape that Christianity had built, and they loved the community. They loved the values. They loved the camaraderie. They loved the sense of purpose that church gave people, yet they were atheists. And they didn't care anything about God. So what was their solution to this? What if we just took church, stripped God out of it, and then boom, we get all the community, all the camaraderie, all the values, all the purpose, um, and we just leave God out of it. Well, they did exactly that. On January 13th, 2013, they started what is known as Sunday Assembly. And on Sunday Assembly, they gathered together on Sunday, a bunch of um, atheists, uh, seculars, gathered together. And they sing songs, and they hear someone talk, and they fellowship, and they have a good time, and then they go home. Now, you may ask yourself, they're not religious. What songs do they sing? Like, they, they don't sing religious songs to God because they don't believe in God, so what songs do they sing? Well, they sing uh, pop hits. They sing, like, Queen and Don't Stop Believing by Journey. Uh, it's really quite remarkable to, to watch. <laughs> but they just all gather together. They put a cover band up on the stage, and then they all basically just sing group karaoke. 
together. And then once they're done with that, uh, a person comes up on the stage and they give a little TED talk on science or um, you know how to live a better life or how to embrace different cultures, diversity, yada, 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 all, all that stuff. And then you know what do they do? They go home. And so they were aiming to to um, to get all of this community and sense of purpose that that Christianity and church gives us, but just pull God completely out of it. Uh, in fact, on their website, they list this as one of the purposes for meeting. This is a direct quote: "Sunday assembly is a one hundred percent celebration of life. We are born from nothing, and we go to nothing. Let's enjoy it together." That's the most positive, depressing statement I've ever heard in my life. But this gained some traction. So again, this started in 2013. Uh, within a few years, they had over 70 congregations with 5,000 members spread across the globe. There were articles uh, written talking about how this, these godless churches were taking the U.S. by storm. At least so we thought. By 2018, that number went from 70, or 70 congregations down to 40 congregations and 5,000 members down to 3,500 members. And here we are, fast forward another five years to today. I don't know the overall numbers. They wouldn't give them to me. I tried. Um, but they have 25 congregations. And so just year over year, they're slowly dwindling down and dwindling down and fizzling out. Now, this movement of the godless churches, they're not the only, Sunday Assembly is not the only one that's struggling to keep people engaged with that movement. There's another movement called the Ethical Society. Uh, one of the biggest ones in the U.S. is in St. Louis, the Ethical Society of St. Louis. And this movement was started in the 1800s and they had a very similar concept. There was this uh, Jewish guy who uh, got up to preach to his synagogue one Sunday, and he said, what if we had a world where we had all the great things of Christianity and just excommunicate God from it? Boom, ethical society was started. And this has been, that one's been going on for hundreds of years, but I sat down and watched a two-hour interview with one of the main leaders of the Ethical Society of St. Louis, and for two hours, he sat and lamented about the decline of his organization. In his words, he said that the overall organization was directionless, that the congregations are dying, that they're not able to plant new congregations, and he's perplexed as to why the leaders of his movement don't show more urgency and care in the proclamation of the movement. And to that, I would say, of course your organization is lethargic and directionless. It's literally directionless. Like, like your, your actual motto is, we only have one life, let's enjoy it together. I promise you this, if I only have one life and all this is for nothing, Sunday mornings, I'm not going to struggle to get my kids out of bed to come together and sing, don't stop believing. That's just not what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the Paul approach in 1 Corinthians where he says, if Jesus hasn't resurrected, our faith is pointless and uh, we might as well drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. That would be the approach that I would take. And so they're wondering why in the world they're having a hard time uh, building community and vision around a godless society and I, I, I think this is their issue. The issue is this, is that they thought that the community, the values, and the sense of purpose in church was birthed by people gathering together, and then they just added God on top of it. 
So they got together, had a purpose, and then just threw God on top of that. That's what they think. In reality, it's all flipped. You have God who has called his people to gather together, and because of that, there is community, value, and purpose. So it's not the community, value, and purpose that produces God. It's God who produces the community, value, and purpose. And if God is the one who gives birth to these things, then when you remove God from that, what's going to happen? It's eventually just going to fizzle out. And that's what we're seeing happen in these godless churches. Now, here's where I want to shift a little bit today for our purposes, is that that is not the case for us. That we gather together as the church, and, and the church goes all the way back to um, when Christ was resurrected, but Christianity and the following of God goes all the way back to the beginning of time. It supersedes us, it supersedes culture, it supersedes politics, where we can all gather together and as strong today as it's ever been, and we are able to come together and sing for a reason. We're not just singing uh, Bohemian Rhapsody together. We're, we're singing songs to God, and there's a reason that we call it ridiculous when 200 people gather together and sing Don't Stop Believing, but we don't call it ridiculous when 200 people gather together and sing Come Thou Fountain of Every Blessing, because there's a reason and there's a purpose behind it. And as we've been talking the past few weeks, we've been talking about worship, what bad worship is, what good worship is, what I want to talk about today is why we worship. Why do we gather together? Why do we sing? Why do we write songs? Why do we study scripture? Why do we have a community of people from all sorts of different backgrounds and cultures and races and uh, socioeconomic upbringings? Why are we all gathered together yet still able to sing together as one in worship of God? That's what I want to talk about today. Today's passage in Revelation 5 gives us a glimpse into why we worship. If you're not familiar with this, uh, we, we probably all know the exciting stuff of Revelation, you know, the mark of the beast and, you know, the famines and the disasters, all that fun stuff. Um, this in Re Revelation 5 is what happened right before all of those things started happening. So in Revelation 5, they're looking for someone who is able to open the scroll, and break the seals. And, and opening the scroll and breaking the seals is those events that are going to take place to usher in the kingdom of God and the new heaven and the new earth. And they're wondering, who is going to usher in this new kingdom? There's no one found worthy. And John, who has seen all this thing, all this stuff take place and writing it down, he's weeping because no one is found worthy to open this scroll. And then finally someone came and said, hey, don't weep anymore. Look over there. It's the Lion of Judah. It's the Root of David, the one who's conquered all. And because he's conquered all, he's worthy to take the scroll. And then he goes up and grabs the scroll. Now, what's interesting for our, purpose to, our purposes today is what happens next. Let's pick it back up in verse 8. So, when he, Jesus, took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Here's an interesting part. And they sang a new song. Don't y'all find that interesting? They're standing before the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, the redeemer of the universe, and the only response that they can muster up is a song. Which, which gives me great hope as to why we gather together. Before we get into a lot of the reasons as to why we worship, like, uh, it's not uncommon 
Biblically speaking, for us to gather together and sing songs to God, that happens here, it actually happens quite a bit throughout the Bible, where you see God has saved his people, done something for his people, moved in the life of his people, and then what's the next thing you see happen? They write a song, and they sing. It's, it's in our nature to, to, I don't know if it's just because we can't like form words, so we just have to put music to it, I don't know, but it's in our nature to, um, when we're met with the worthiness and the work of God, to respond in song. And that's why we gather together, just before we get started, is the reason we gather together and sing, if you've ever wondered, is because we are gathering together to remind ourselves of what all God has done in our life and then respond to that. Now we're going to take a look at this song that they sang. And the great thing is, is that in this song, it describes exactly why Jesus is worthy. Exactly why Jesus is worthy to open the scroll, why Jesus is worthy of their worship, and why Jesus is worthy of our worship. So we're going to walk through this song, and I'm just going to point out a few things. It's not an exhaustive list by any means, but we're just going to take a look at why Jesus is worthy. So let's go ahead and keep going. So let's pull back up in verse 9. So it says this, And they sang a new song, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slaughtered and you purchased your people for God by your blood. So out the gate, one of the very first reasons that these people are worshiping and why we worship God and his worthiness is because he purchased us. He purchased us uh, for God by his blood. So that's, that's the first reason why we worship is he purchased us. Now, some of your translations may use different words. Some of yours may say redeemed or bought or ransomed, and those are fine translations. But I like, I like the ones that say purchased or bought because what that implies is a transaction took place. Like when God, when God saved us, when God redeemed us, a transaction took place. And if a transaction took place, then there was a price that was paid for that. What was the price? Well, it says it. He purchased people for God by his blood. Now, at this point, one of the questions I had grown up is why? Like God is God and God can do whatever he wants. So why did God have to die in order for us to be saved? If he's God and can do whatever he wants, why doesn't he just save us? Like, he can just forgive us, right? Well, there's, there's a delicate balance going on here. So let's, let's go back to the fundamentals here. For one, the Bible describes us, we sin, right? You do bad things, I do bad things. Yeah. Now, what comes with that sin is a debt. So in the same way, some of y'all may have credit cards. When you swipe a credit card, the action of swiping that, on the other side of that transaction, what happens? A debt starts to pile up, and then you pay off that debt, right? That's how they work. So whenever we sin, what the Bible says is the debt of that sin, the consequence of that sin is death. Right? So every time we sin, death is the debt over here piling up. Now, that, that's fine. God is a loving and forgiving and merciful and justice, or sorry, a gracious God. What does he do? He, he can forgive us, right? So let's say God comes in and says, I forgive you of that debt. Well, God is also a God of justice. So that means the debt is still there, right? The debt is still there and the debt still has to be dealt with. Right? So like, for example, my daughter uh, is three years old. Her name is Lottie. And one of the things that she likes to do is sit in our car behind the steering wheel and pretend that she's driving. Like if I get in my car and I start the car and the windshield wipers start going off and, and all the buttons are, are messed with, I know Lottie was in the car. Or maybe it's Randy. Have you been doing that, Randy? I'm just kidding. Okay. 
So my daughter loves to play in the car. Let's say, hypothetically speaking, she was able to get a hold of, keep in mind she's three years old, uh, let's say hypothetically speaking, she was able to get a hold of my keys, go to the car, start the car, put it in reverse, start going down the road and take it for a joy ride, and then she wrecks it down the, down the road. A little far-fetched for a three-year-old, but some of you have teenagers that you could probably imagine that with. So she wrecks the car, and then she comes to me repentant and sad and crying and saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I'll never do this again. Will you please forgive me? And then me, in my abundant grace and mercy, I say, you're, you're forgiven. Now, what's still going on down the street? There's still a wrecked car and a mess to clean up down the street. I can forgive her all day long, but that doesn't change the fact that there are thousands of dollars of damage hanging out down the road that I got to deal with. And so one of two things can happen. She can be burdened by the debt of her actions, or as I forgive her, I can shift that burden of debt to me. But the debt is still there, right? Someone's got to pay for the car, even if I forgive her. The same thing happens with our sin. Why did God have to die to uh, save us from our sin? Because our sin produces a debt, and that debt has to be paid. God is the God of justice. The debt is there and it has to be paid. Enter in Jesus in our passage today because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood. He paid that debt by his blood. Now, I love the word slaughtered there, not just because I love horror movies, but the word slaughtered there is like such a graphic word. And if you remember earlier when they were describing Jesus as he was taking the scroll, they described him as what? A slaughtered lamb. Some of your translations may put it this way, is that he stood as a lamb who had been slain. Now, this is no mistake. This is the metaphor that they're getting at is, is hearkening back to the Passover lamb found in the Old Testament. And so this is one of the first and, and most significant uh, sacrifices that God gave his people. Uh, they were about to be liberated out of Egypt and out of slavery. And God told them, uh, oh, sorry, uh, God was sending one final judgment on the land. And that one final judgment was all the firstborns are going to die, including Israel. Like, like all of Israel's firstborns are going to die as well. Y'all are caught up in the judgment as well. And God said, here's how you're going to escape this judgment. You sacrifice the lamb, you put the blood on the doorpost. And as I come by, I'll see the blood. I see that something else has already died here and taken the place. And I'm going to keep moving forward. So we see in one of the very first um, sacrifices presented to the Israelites is that there was a significance to it that there is death that must be paid and that sacrifice must take its place. Now, what that was pointing to was the true Passover lamb. It was foreshadowing Jesus coming thousands of years later and what we get to talk about thousands of years later, that Jesus is the true Passover lamb, that he was hung on a cross. And as he hung on his cross, the blood was smeared upon the cross. And as um, anyone who gathers underneath that cross no longer feels the judgment and the wrath of God because that debt has been paid. Even more than that, Jesus' final three words on the cross was, it is finished. The Greek phrase right there is tetelestai. Tetelestai was uh, at times used as a financial statement for debts and taxes. And so what they would do is, is as they would have these, these debt and taxes, whenever it was paid, they would stamp tetelestai on there, it is finished, meaning the debt is done. 
it is finished, right? So Jesus is up here on the cross bearing our burden, bearing our debt, and when it's done, his final words are to tell us die, it is finished. And what he means by that is the debt is done. You don't have to worry anymore about that debt. You have been purchased. And so the first and probably most significant reason we worship God is because he's purchased us and he's paid the debt that we couldn't pay. And that's why one of the main reasons we gather together and we worship and we sing. But it doesn't just end there. It keeps going. So let's pull it back up in verse 9. They sang a new song, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe, language, people, and nation, and you made them a kingdom and a priest to God. So here you have God isn't just purchasing us and redeeming us, but he's taking people from every tribe, every language, every nation, and he's pulling them together and unifying us. And that's the second reason why we worship God. He unifies us. He purchases us and he unifies us. And this is a common theme throughout the Bible, that, that not only uh, when sin entered the world, not only was our relationship with God severed, but our relationship with each other was severed. You see this immediately with Adam and Eve. I've mentioned this before, that, that prior to sin, they were naked and unashamed before each other. They didn't, they didn't have any walls up. And then the moment they sinned, what happens? Their eyes were open. They realized they were naked and they were ashamed. So they hid themselves from each other. Immediately, there's a wall being put up between mankind. Go just one generation later to Cain and Abel. And this wall turns into killing each other. Fast forward a few chapters later in Genesis to chapter 11. And this rebellion and sin against God escalates so much that God comes in and he scatters their languages and scatters them among the world. And for the first time, you have tribes and you have nations. And with tribes and nations, you have um, racism and uh, uh, prejudice and discrimination and fighting and wars and conflict between all of these nations. And, and that's not what God intended. God, when God made Adam and Eve, he didn't intend for us to be um, against each other. He intended for us to live in perfect harmony with him and perfect harmony with each other. So it makes sense that when God comes in and he redeems us, he's not just redeeming our relationship with him, he's redeeming our relationship with each other. And that's why we're able to gather together as different culture backgrounds, as different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, as different race backgrounds, as different uh, personalities. We're able to all gather together under one roof to sing um, and worship God in one voice and in one song. We see this healing process take place between man and the New Testament where um, uh, in the, the church you had the Jews and the Gentiles who were considered equal now in the church. And that just boggled their mind. And in case you don't know, the Jews were the Israelites and the Gentiles were anyone who wasn't a Jew. right? And so there was great prejudice and great discrimination between these two groups. They did not like each other. And one of the main questions that the New Testament is answering is, how do we take these two groups who do not like each other and unify them as one church? Ephesians 2.14 gives a glimpse into how, how this is done. It says this, For he, Jesus, is our peace, who made both groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, one, and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Likely the wall right there, the dividing wall of hostility, 
was this wall that was built um, in the midst of the Jewish temple. So go ahead and throw up that image. So this is the temple um, that, the, uh, uh, that was in Jerusalem. You see the center part here with all the buildings. That's where Israel congregated and uh, gave their sacrifices. That's where the Holy of Holies was, where they would go meet God. And then you see there's uh, two little arrows on the outside that says the, the court of the Gentiles. So if you were a Gentile who wanted to follow God, you could come into the temple, but you had to stay in the court of the Gentiles. You couldn't come into the inner courts uh, with Israelites and worship God there. Now you see in between the, the inner part and the court of the Gentiles, there's little walls. That's likely the wall that Paul was referring to here, is that you literally had walls that was separating out people based on their race. It's like if I was to put a wall straight down the middle of this church here, and on this side I said, hey, if you're American, hang out right here. Everyone else, go right here. And then I was to tell you, hey, we're all worshiping together, right? Are we? Are we? Or is there a wall that's, that's bringing up this hostility that's baked into human nature right there? So what Jesus did when he came in, go, go back to that verse for me, uh, Ephesians 2. Uh, yeah, uh, so he, Jesus, is our peace who made both groups one and he tore down this dividing wall. So how did Jesus bring peace? He said, there is no longer Jew or Greek or Gentile. All are made one under Christ. And that's, that's why we can all gather together and be made and unified under Christ. Now, now, here's the thing. Our, our world, our culture is very big on diversity, and they're big on diversity for diversity's sake. They'll say, okay, we need X amount of uh, this type of people, X amount of this type of people, X amount of this type of people. Why? Just because, right? So that's not what Jesus is doing here. That's not what God is doing in his redemption plan. He's not just trying to meet a quota of different types of people. What he's doing is he's taking all of these different types of people, different backgrounds, different races, different cultures, different personalities, and he's pulling them together as one, not to have a melting pot of ideas, but to unify them under a new identity in Christ. If we go back to our verse in uh, verse 10, it says, from every tribe, language, and people and nation, you made them a kingdom. And so he didn't bring together all these nations and peoples and groups and say, you maintain your people and your groups and we're just all going to be a melting pot. No, he says, we're going to bring them all together and we're going to make them something new together. And that's why I can stand before you today, and I'm American, but I identify as a Christian. I might be white, but I identify as a Christian. We may all have different backgrounds, but when we come together, we are unified because we are Christian first and whatever else second. That's what Christ is trying to do when he unifies us together. And that's why it's really important when we gather together. Have you all ever realized that when we gather together and sing that this isn't private worship, but this is corporate worship? And, and that's, that's a really important thing. When, when people say, hey, I'm all good with God, I'm all good with spirituality, but I don't need the church, they're missing this entire purpose, is that God didn't just save you, he saved us that, that um, whenever you come here, it's not just you and God, it's us and God. That's why we sing one song and one voice together, worshiping the Lord, because he unified us. So he purchased us and he unified us. And again, it doesn't stop there. We're going to keep going real quickly. 
uh, in verse 10, it says, you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. Now, this isn't a reference to, to the, the current earth. This is a reference to what's going to take place at the end of Revelation, where it says they're going to take all, God's going to take all the sin and death and throw it into the lake of fire. And what's going to be left is the new heaven and the new earth. God is going to descend and reside among his resurrected people forever and ever and ever. And and this is one of the main things that, that differentiates us from the godless churches I was talking about earlier. The godless churches, their motto is, you only have one life, there's nothing after this, you might as well make it good. Where our motto is, this isn't your only life. That whenever this life is over, there's another life to come, either one to death and destruction or one to life and exaltation and resurrection with Jesus. Here's the beauty of the gospel, guys, if, you've, if you haven't noticed, is that the gospel isn't just you don't get what you deserve. The gospel is that you get what you don't deserve. That's the great exchange that happens, is that we deserve death because of the debt that we racked up. Christ pays that debt through death, and then that's enough right there for us to just let go and just start with a clean slate. But that just, that's not where it ends. He exchanges our death for his life, for his redemption, for his righteousness, for his exaltation. Christ is above all, over all. He's been exalted to the highest place, and in his humility, he's inviting us into that. And so why do we worship him? Because he is a God who not just purchased us and redeemed us, he didn't just unify us, but he's inviting us into an eternal life with him where we get to reign with him in the new heaven and the new earth, free of sin, free of pain, free of despair. He's worthy because of that. Now, after all this, you might, you might say to yourself, but what if I don't feel like worshiping? Well, uh, as Ben Shapiro says, facts don't care about your feelings. God is worthy of worship, whether or not you feel like worshiping. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is in Psalm 103, I believe, where David says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Who's David talking to there? Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's talking to himself. He's looking at himself. I can just imagine he's waking up one day. He's like, I just don't feel like worshiping. And he just looks down at himself and he's like, what are you doing? Worship God. Bless the Lord. What are you doing? And then what we see in the, that Psalm, he starts, reminding, he starts reminding himself of everything that God has done in his life. And so we're about to move into a time of invitation. We're going to sing. And you may stand up and you've got a million other things that you're thinking about. Uh, I'm about to go on a two-hour drive to go meet family. There's lots of things to think about. But maybe what we should do, instead of having our minds scattered by all these different things, scattered by our apathy, scattered by um, whatever we're thinking about, focus ourselves and say, self, what are you doing? Bless God. Look at what all he's done in your life. He's done this, he's done this, he's done this, he's done. Recount your blessings. Remind yourself of what all God has done in your life and then allow that to muster up a song to the Lord that we see here. Let me pray that we do that. Lord, we thank you, God, for your word, and we thank you that, that you love us and that you care for us, and that in your great mercy, you stepped down into time, you bore our debt, and you purchased us. 
And I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't take that lightly. Now, some of us have probably been Christians and going to church for decades, all of our life, and, and that sobering reality that you stepped into time and purchased us has just fallen a little bit flat in our ears. And, and Lord, just stir the fire in our heart to help us feel the weight of that statement. That not only are we not getting the death that we deserve, but we're gaining the righteousness and the exaltation that you deserve. I pray, Lord, that we're humbled before you and we see the worthiness of who you are. And because of your worthiness, the only thing we can do is just muster up a song to praise you for it. That we would bless you. That we would praise you. Again, we're going to move into a time of invitation. And maybe the, the most significant thing you can do right now is just sing to God a true heart of worship. Maybe you need to pray. Maybe you're a person that you're like, I have never experienced the redemption and the salvation of God. And you, let me tell you this, you can't worship God for something you've never experienced. And so maybe, before, maybe you've been trying to muster up worship in your life and the reason that you can't muster up that worship is because you've never experienced God in your life. You've gathered around his people, but you're not one of his people. And so maybe you need to just give your life to Jesus, place your faith in Jesus and experience that redemption and that salvation. If that's you, we'd love to talk to you. We'll walk you through that. However God is working in your life, this is just your time to respond. Can we all stand up together? We're going to stand and we're going to sing. However God is calling you to respond, we encourage you to do it.